right. Good morning, everyone. So just to dust off the cobwebs, let's uh, take a little review trip back before we, we move on this morning. We are looking at the practical implications of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. Now, again, it is not our business to use this information to try to look around us and determine who is and who isn't. What is our business is to be very clear on what it means to be an authentic Christian and then make our decisions uh, based on that information. So again, our guide is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, which starts with the two words, and the two words are, if then. If you're a Christian, then this is what's true of you. The 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who follows Jesus Christ. These 17 verses uh, can be divided into three major categories. Each category has three identifiers in the category. So three times three is nine. That makes a total of nine identifiers in these 17 verses. The first category describes the decisions that followers of Christ make. The three decisions are represented by the three words that precede the name of Christ in these first four verses. They all begin with the letter W. These are the three W words. They are with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have discovered the hidden treasure the entire world is searching for. You've discovered the secret of life. Everybody's searching for the secret of life. Everybody's looking for what they can either own or maybe do or ingest in order to feel alive. Christians are those who have concluded that the secret of life lies at the source of life itself, Jesus Christ. He is God in flesh. So they make a very important decision, a life-altering decision. They decide to be with Christ. They decide to attach their life to him. And this attachment raises their life. It elevates their life, both now in this life and for all of eternity in the life to come. And that decision to attach their life to Christ changes what they live for now. They decide to value what heaven values because, well, that's where Christ is. They're attached to Christ, so now they begin to seek the things that are above, not just the stuff here. They begin to live here in light of the value set that heaven says is really valuable, not what, whatever this world says is valuable. And that, boy, that frees up a lot of time and a lot of money. They don't waste near as much time and money chasing all of the dead ends this world offers. They know that the treasure isn't here because, well, Christ isn't here. So they decide to wait patiently for the day when Christ shows up and makes everything wrong right. Now, like anyone, they would prefer things to work out now. But if they don't, they don't demand that life work out now. That's because they understand that they're in the middle of a great story, not at the end of the story. And you have to wait till the last page to see how it all turns out. So rather than writing their own little personal pamphlets in which they star and are the hero, 
they decide to give their lives to the larger story of God that's been going on since the beginning of creation. And they are excited to be in the book of life, to have their names entered into some part of the great story that God is telling. And they're able to live their life for this larger purpose because of this. Now, with these three decisions in place, these three life-altering decisions in place, Christians then go to work on the implications of these decisions. They put in place three practices that support these decisions. The old practice of searching for buried treasure here is put to death. They put to death the, the search and the decision to worship and bow down to the things in this world. And they put these things to death, not just once, not with just a sudden decision, not, not one move, but by starving these things to death, by not feeding them and supporting them. And this is a lifelong endeavor because as soon as you start feeding those, they start growing, the life inside starts growing and taking over. And then the old patterns, the natural patterns of using anger and deception to manipulate people, those patterns are put off, and they're replaced with the practices of love. Those practices are put on. Now, when we speak of love, we're not talking about the sentimental emotion that we often think of, but, but an intelligent grasp of how we really can best help other people. That kind of love. Now, this doesn't come easily. None of this comes easily. This is a, a lifelong pursuit it begins with these decisions, but it is carried out every day in the trenches of life. And it's not always easy. And the reason is because the old patterns run deep. Our history tends to dominate who we are. The patterns are very profound and deep, and it takes a lot of practice. And it requires a lot of help to work on these practices over time. And not only if you make these decisions, not only do you face an internal battle with the things that rise in your own heart that are not right and the things from the past that have shaped you and done damage to you, not only do you wrestle with those things on the inside, you gain an unseen enemy who is not at all pleased at your decisions. You gain a foe, Satan himself and his vast horde is now set to oppose your decisions and uh, derail and upend and distract you from any attempt to grow. And this doesn't happen just occasionally as it's on his mind. No, this happens day in, day out, relentlessly. So you've now entered a war that, well, quite honestly, you and I are unmatched for. Now, thankfully... Christ is far, far more powerful than Satan and his horde. Far more powerful than your past patterns or my past patterns. But in order for that power to really take effect in our life, we have to let his power gain access into the details of our daily life. And that's what we're going to talk about next. The key word in the final three verses of this Colossians 1, or 3, 1 through 17, is the word let. The word let. 
So the first three segment, it was three W words. Se uh, section number two is the word put, put to death, put off, put on. The key word in this section is the word let. The word let means simply to allow, to let something happen. Negatively, you could state it on the other side, it means to, to not prevent, to, to not get in the way of, to let it happen. So what is it that we are to not get in the way of, not prevent, and to allow to enter into our lives? Well, it's the power of Christ. The power of Christ is available to help us at any moment in this life. But in these three verses, we are presented three key areas and ways in which we can access the power of Christ, practically. And these are the three. There is, first of all, the peace of Christ. If you don't have the peace of Christ, you're going to spend your days distracted by anxiety and worry and all kinds of things that people spend most of their lives involved in. Then there is the word of Christ. God's word is an incredible source of power, but you have to access it. And then there is the name of Christ. There is no name above that name, but you have to learn how to use that name. Now, like any power, Christ's power has to be connected to or plugged into in order for it to have its effect on us. Now, every power has a point of connection, a let that allows that power to flow. And it's the same with Christ. There is a, a series of lets that allow the power of Christ practically to flow into our days. And that let allows the power to be real. So when it comes to the power of Christ's peace, there's, there's no one that can offer peace like Christ can. But all of that power and all that peace is just sitting there untapped until we let it into our life. Well, how do we let it, and how do we let the peace of Christ into our life? Well, the key word is we let it rule. That's the key let, we let rule. Now, the way the, I mentioned the New Testament is written in the Greek language, and so the way the Greek is constructed in these three verses is important uh, to understand. So I, I want you to maybe write this down if you're taking notes. So in the first let, it would, in the, if you were to read it in the Greek language, it would read this way, let rule Christ's peace. Let rule Christ's peace. Let it rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is the way we say it in English. But in Greek, it would be let rule Christ's peace. That would be the sentence structure. The let for Christ's word, the next source of power, is the word dwell. So the Greek would say let dwell Christ's word. Let the word of Christ live in you richly is what it says in English. But in Greek, it's just simply let dwell Christ's word in you. And then the let for Christ's name is live. In English, it says do everything in the name of Christ, but in Greek, it literally means let live Christ's name. So these three are kind of like a three-pronged plug. You know, most of the plugs you, we have now have um, three prongs to them. And these are the three prongs. Let rule Christ's word, let dwell sorry, let rule Christ's peace, let dwell Christ's word, and let live Christ's name. So these are the, it's a three-pronged plug. You know, all the electrical power in the world doesn't do any good if the appliance isn't plugged into it. 
Christ's vast power, similarly, does us no good if we won't let his power have access to our lives. If we don't plug into it. His peace is there, but if we won't let it rule us, it's not going to help us. His word is there, but if we don't get to know it well enough for it to become a home, if we don't let it dwell in us, then we're not really going to gain the benefit from it. And as I said, his name is the name that is above every single name. But if we don't know how to drop his name, if we don't know how to use his name in daily life, then it just, it doesn't matter how great and powerful his name is. All of that power just sits in reserve. So first, what we're going to look at in this session is Christ's peace. And then tonight, we're going to look at Christ's word and then Christ's name. So first of all, Christ's peace. So here's the verse that speaks to that. Colossians 3, verse 15. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, if you're worried, that means that you are restless. You're agitated on the inside about something that you're concerned about in the future. And that... That unsettledness, that restlessness on the inside, that will power down and distract you from any effort that you're putting into rearranging the pieces of your life. All of the practices that we talked about in the last session, if you're anxious, that dominates you. If you're not in a state of peace, that, whatever it is you're upset about, whatever you're anxious about, well, that that's now going to run the next two, three hours or maybe the next two, three days. And whatever you've been trying to do about putting to death the things that are earthly in you or putting off the manipulation and putting on the practice of love, all of a sudden it's like, I don't got time to practice my instrument. I'm worried about this and this is going to consume me. And it, your life, your Christian life, which is your life, begins to power down. It's kind of like your cell phone. It's not plugged in, you got limited time, and then it dies. This is what happens to all the efforts to support the decisions we've made. Is Worry or a sense of unrest and unease on the inside, that is really the way most people spend many, many hours of their days. It's just this constant churning on the inside about something. And so we need peace so we can focus on the things that God says are really important. Without that... What tends to happen when people get in a state of unrest or a state of turmoil, they go back to their old patterns. Because you know what's true of the old patterns? They're predictable. They may be awful, they may be hard, they may cause me pain eventually, but at least I know. When you're in a state of turmoil and unrest, it's because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But if you go back to a familiar addiction, you know, at least for the next few hours, what's going to happen, because that's your pattern. You know, it's predictable. Now, Jesus has the kind of peace that can rule a heart, even in the most dire of circumstances, but we need to let him. So the key question is how? The word, as I've said, is rule. This is a very interesting word in the Greek language. It's a word that was used for um, those who would officiate over sporting events. 
So a working definition of this word would be to referee over. Another way to say it would be to blow the whistle when you break the rules or you're out of bounds. So a referee applies the rules of a contest on the field of play. So what's the field of play in which we want Christ to rule? Well, it's our heart. You know, let the peace of Christ rule where? In your hearts. Not, not just your emotions, but the thoughts that drive and produce and sustain those emotions. What this is saying, this is the way I would say it, is let the peace of Christ blow the whistle whatever your thoughts are out of bounds. This is practically what we have to do. How often do we have to do that? Well, how often are your thoughts out of bounds? A lot. So however often you have to do that, you got to let Christ say, up, oh, foul, be out of bounds, get back in bounds. Now, like any sporting event that has referees, the players must first understand and agree to the rules. I mean, imagine if you're playing um, basketball and you don't really know the rules. And all you know is the referee keeps blowing the whistle and you don't understand what happened, what did I do, why was that a foul? Now you need to first know the rules before the whistle is gonna make any sense. So without understanding the rules, the, the whistle of the referee has no real effect on you. So what I wanna do in this session is I wanna suggest to you three important rules that apply to the peace of Christ, that we need to understand. If we're gonna let the, the whistle of Christ's peace let us know when we're stepping out of bounds in our thoughts. So what are the rules that apply to the peace of Christ? Well, here they are. Rule number one, there's three rules. Rule number one is the team rule. You gotta join God's team. That's what it says here, in which indeed you were called in one body. Now, I remember the first time someone tried to explain to me the difference between the American and the National League in baseball. Now, to me, I didn't know much about baseball, and um, I, loved, I loved going to like an Angel game you know, in Southern California. But you go to a, a National League game or you go to an American League game, and they look about the same. The player uniforms look the same, the fields look the same, but you know, they use the same equipment, but there's a big difference. The big difference is a rule, one particular rule. It's called Rule 5.11. It was adopted by the American League back in 1973. And this rule allows a player, a designated player, a designated hitter, it's called the DH rule, to bat in place of the picture, pitcher in the rotation. Pitcher doesn't have to bat in the American League. In the National League, they do. Now, that may sound like a small rule, but that one rule changes a lot in the game. It changes a lot of the strategy. And the umpires, the referees that officiate the game, they do it based on whether they're in a National League park or an American League park. And so you're a baseball player. If you join an American League baseball team, you're playing by American League rules. If you're a National League, you're playing by National League rules. Now, I say this because a similar thing happens when you decide to become a Christian. You decide to join a league. It's called the body of Christ, the church. Many people miss this. 
They think that it's just an independent decision. It is that, but it's an independent decision with a team implication that comes with it. In the New Testament, there's just no such thing as just me and Jesus. There's just independent Christians. It's always Christians who are part of the body of Christ, the church. You decide to join a league called the body of Christ. As I said, that's why this verse says, to which indeed you were called, what, all by yourself? No, in one body. So, like in baseball, ball, or any sport, you can't join the league just as an individual. You join the larger league by joining a specific team in the league. You know, if you want to play for the NFL, you don't just go to the NFL office and sign up as a football player. No, you join a team. You have to join an NFL team. That's the way it happens as a follower of Christ. You don't just decide to follow Jesus. You practically follow Jesus as you pick a church and you decide to join that team. So authentic Christians are not just individuals following Christ. They are that, but there's more to it than that. They have joined the overall body of Christ by attaching themselves to a team, a church, a specific part of the body. You know, if someone, uh, if you're talking to someone and they, they inform you that they are a football player, what's your first question? Oh, what team? What if they were to say, well, you know, I don't really play on a team. I'm kind of a at-large football player. I've got the pads in my room. I, I, I put them on every once in a while. I do some drills. But, you know, teams are, they have coaches, and coaches, they have rules, and I don't like organized football. <laughs> I prefer personal football. Now, what would you say? It's like, I don't think you're a football player. So once they tell you the team they play for, what would be another question? What position? And it, again, if they, if they say, oh, I'm, I, you know, I play on this team, and you ask them what position, and they say, you know, I don't like to narrow myself down to any one position. I, I prefer to kind of keep my options open, play offense when I want, defense when I want, quarterback when I think I've got a good idea. Receiver when I feel like scoring a touchdown. Again, you would say, I don't know what you think you are, but you're not a football player. And one of the things that I often do is when I'm talking with someone that I don't really know and they, they tell me they're a Christian, one of my first questions is, oh, what church are you a part of? I mean, it's a team question. And I often get the, you know, I, I don't, I don't, really like organized religion. So I, I don't really, I'm not a part of any team. It's like, huh. Do you like organized banking? I mean, do you want to put your money just, I mean, do you like banks that are organized? Oh, yeah. My bank better be organized. So the things you're serious about, you like organization, but it's the things you're not serious about you don't really want organized. Because organization puts, well, it puts demands on people's lives. So if they say, well, I'm not really part of any church, I'm like, huh. 
But if they say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I go to this church. One of the things I've discovered sometimes people who say they're Christians but aren't really a part of a church, they have a cover church. <laughs> you know what a cover church is, right? It's a place I never go, but I went once. And so it's to get everyone to back off. So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I go to... And you just hear the pause as they drum the name up again. Oh, yeah, 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 that church. It's like, oh, that's great. That's a great church. What do you do there? Uh. So again, it's, it's the football question. If you're not on a team, if you don't have a job, you're not on a team. So this, that's practically how we're part of the body of Christ. Where? What's the name? Another a good question is, is that church aware that you're on the team? You know? I mean, if someone's on a football team and the coach doesn't know who that person is, I don't know. Now, if it's a really large church, you know, the senior pastor may not know everybody's name, but somebody there does. And what, what are you doing? How are you helping out? What, what's your role on the team? Now, we look the same as everybody else. You know, Christians don't look different. We, we wear the same clothes, drive the same kind of cars, go to the same banks, attend the same kind of schools. The field of play that we are in, this world looks the same. We go to the same grocery stores. We do what everyone else does. But we, we're, in, we're in a different league we're on a different team, and therefore we live by a very different set of rules than the world does. So if you want the peace of Christ, but you haven't joined the team of Christ, you're not going to be able to come up with the peace. It's for those who are on the team. Just like the referee whistle is for the teams that are on the field to play. Jesus said this in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, that just uneasy, settled, swirling uneasiness. And do not be afraid. Jesus said here that his peace is a very different kind of peace than all of the other peace plans that this world has. I mean, peace is a problem everybody has. So every culture over time comes up with its own rules of peace. It's kind of an agreed upon understanding of what the conditions are that are required in order to have rest and calm on the inside. And we grow up in whatever culture we grew up in, whatever family we grew up in, we grew up learning these rules. And then we decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ and we join his team and it's a different rule book of peace. That's what Jesus says. My, my peace is different. There, there, it's not the kind of peace that this world offers. But we still, again, we have our history. And if the peace conditions that we grew up learning about, if they're met, well then, we can be at rest on the inside. So, these are just some of the, let me just give you some examples. If you grew up in this culture, uh, one of the conditions of peace that you were told about and you adopted is that peace occurs only when you have enough money. This is, this is one of the biggest rules of our culture. 
If you want peace, if you want rest on the inside, you're going to need a pile of cash. And that's a pretty powerful rule because you can solve a lot of problems with a pile of cash. We call it being set for life. You know, I've, I've often, you know, people will say, you know, that money can't buy happiness. And I know that that's true, but there's been moments in my life where I've thought, you know what, I'd like to discover that for myself. <laughs> I, I volunteer for that experiment. <laughs> Give me $100,000 and I'll let you know in a few months if it really can't buy happiness. I just would like to try it out. <laughs> Not had enough money to, to really know that for myself. But that's, I grew up in this culture and that's what we think. And this is why so many people spend so much of their life doing nothing more than trying to acquire more of it. Because they want to finally get to the great goal of the American dream, which is what? Retirement. I mean, fishing, golfing, something. So I'll put up with 40 years of turmoil to get maybe 20 years of peace. That's the rule of our culture. Christ's rule is very different in this area. He says, you know, actually my peace occurs whenever you attach your life to me, the one who just happens to own everything. That's where peace comes from. The challenge is, I'm with Christ, he owns everything, but everything is under his name, it's not in my bank account. And so I struggle with having peace when my bank account is not peace worthy. But that's what I need to work on is blowing the whistle. Like, wait, 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 I don't have the money. I don't know how I'm going to solve this challenge or that challenge over time. But I've seen Jesus come through again and again and again and again. And so I'm learning over time. I'm slow on this one, but I'm learning over time. You know, I can, I can find peace because I know the one who owns everything, even though I don't have enough right now. Here's another rule of peace in this culture. Peace occurs whenever you succeed. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever your pursuit is. Usually involves, you know, some goals that you realize. Usually involves people, you know, um, thinking you're amazing, that you've arrived. But whatever success looks like, if I can get there, then I can finally rest on the inside. I've succeeded. I've arrived. Turns out success is a pretty elusive thing. And again, those who have arrived at massive levels of success, they're just still in turmoil on the inside. So here's Christ's rule on that. Peace occurs not when you're successful, but when you do your part. In other words, you can go to bed at night and fall asleep in peace, even if in everyone else's mind this day was a failure, but between you and me, you know that you did your part and you did what I wanted you to do. That's enough. Now you can be at peace. This is a real challenge especially if you enter a season of life where there's just a lot of setbacks and a lot of failures and it looks like things aren't working out the way they're supposed to be. Well, what you need to do at that point 
is blow the whistle on that, let Christ blow the whistle on that, and then get real clear, okay, so what am I supposed to be doing? Am I doing my part? Is there something I need to be doing different? And then put in a good day of doing that, and then allow the peace of Christ to rule. Peace comes by doing your part, not based on the outcome, based on faithfulness. Here's another rule that's probably been the dominant one in my life. Peace occurs when people like you. I mean, that makes sense, right? If everybody likes me, that's a good day. It turns out that's not easy to come up with sometimes, especially if you lead. So let me just give you a warning. If you lead, uh, people aren't going to like you sometimes. Here's Christ's rule on that. Peace occurs when you love them. Not when they love you, but when you love them. You know, for me personally, this, is, this has been a real challenge. I'm a lifelong recovering people pleaser. And God's really been at work on this in my life. And I would say I've spent most of my life able to have a moderate level of peace if between, only between five and ten people don't like me. I've, I've kind of I've gotten to the point where, okay, I can, I can handle peace at a five to ten person don't like me level. And then several years ago, some things happened at our church, and all of a sudden, for about two years, about a hundred people didn't like me. I mean, really didn't like me. And they would sit in church on Sunday morning as I would speak, and they would scowl and shake their heads at me as I would talk. And I had a hard time sleeping. And what I realized is that I had learned to trust the peace of Christ for five to ten haters, but not for a hundred. So I really had to work on this because I needed sleep. You know, God will take you to whatever point it is. He knows, he knows the rules that you live by, and he will take you beyond where those rules work so that you can learn to live by his rules of peace. He really wants you to, to put in a good, hard day of what he wants you to do and then just sleep like a baby because you're forgiven, you've invested in what will last for eternity, you have no idea what's going to happen, but he does, and that's enough. He wants that for us. Because that kind of person, they can wake up refreshed and focused and ready to do something important the next day. When you go through periods of time where you don't have peace, your energy and your focus just starts cratering. You get to the point where you can say and do some really hard and damaging things because you've, you've been in turmoil for so long. So peace doesn't just happen. It has rules. And we first have to decide which peace rules we want to live by. The rules that Jesus said peace comes or the rules that whatever our culture or world says peace comes by. And then we have to work on learning those rules and implementing those rules. So we do that first of all as we join a team, the team rule. The second rule is the scenario rule. John 10, 
verse 19. Well, let me give you time to write that down. The scenario rule. John chapter 10, or 20 rather, uh, Jesus had been crucified. The disciples had fled for their lives. And now they were holed up in a room, terrified that the authorities were going to find them and crucify them. So we read this now in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, not a lot of peace going on in this room, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, you'll notice Jesus say this oftentimes as he arrives in the scene, as he walks in. You can imagine Jesus walking into this room, and maybe the first thing he would say is, peace be with you. He would often, not every time, but he would often do this. What was he saying? What he was saying is, all right, I'm here, everyone. You can relax now. Just, just calm down. I'm here. Now, what did the presence of Jesus change? Practically, what it changed was the scenarios these disciples were running in their heads. They thought he was dead. They'd heard this morning, they'd heard some rumors of a resurrection, but most of them were still thinking, that's crazy talk. They thought he was dead. And so before they saw him and knew he had risen from the dead, they were running some pretty bad scenarios. You see, just a few days earlier, they had been running scenarios about where they might end up on his cabinet, his leadership team, once he defeated Rome and set up his government. That's what they really thought was going to happen. Jesus had told them, no, I'm going to die in, in the place of your sin. And they were just like, that's not the kind of Messiah we want. We want one that gets rid of Rome and reasserts the power of Israel. So that's what they were thinking. And then all of a sudden, Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial. And then he was crucified. And so after his death, their scenario creation shifted from, am I going to be in charge of commerce? Or am I going to be in charge of foreign affairs? Or am I going to be in charge of treasury? To, am I going to live for a week or a month? They started creating death scenarios about how they might be found and captured and tortured and killed. One of the things that we need to understand about our minds, the way our minds work, is one of the primary activities of our minds is scenario creation. We do this all the time. We run scenarios about what might happen. Now, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's how we think. We analyze the current facts that are around us, and we make decisions about the future. You're going to do that you know, about what you do this afternoon. You're going to run scenarios, should I do that activity? Should I hang out with this person? Now, if I do that, this is going to happen. No, I think I'd rather do this because that's going to happen. I mean, we just, that's the way we think. Now, the rules under which we create scenarios have two components. The data is our past experience mixed together with the natural projection of what we, by experience, think is going to happen. So based on our past experience, how do we think this is going to go? natural projection. So that's what the disciples were doing. Jesus wasn't the first one to show up in Palestine claiming to be the Messiah. This had happened before. 
People had risen to power under false pretense that they were the Messiah. And that never ended well. They knew what happened to the followers of those kind of messiahs. They were hunted down, arrested, tortured, and killed. Now, they were positive that Jesus was the Messiah. They had seen the miracles. They would heard him speak. They were positive that he wasn't one of those fake messiahs. But now, he was dead like all the other ones. And so based on their past experience, they naturally projected, uh-oh, we know how this story goes. We're next. But then Jesus showed up, and all of a sudden the scenario shifted. They changed from worry to peace. Why? God's in the room. He really was the Messiah. And when God's in the room... Our scenario creation has some new data points. Not just the past history, but the past history of what God has done is added to our scenario creation. And not just natural projection of what might happen, but supernatural projection of what God might do. Now that creates some very different scenarios. Now you're beginning to wonder, Okay, out of this current mess, what have I seen God do out of messes in the past? What have I read about in Scripture? What have I seen in my own life? And then you look to the future. It's not just what's going to happen to me, but what might God do? Well, that opens up a whole different set of scenarios, scenarios that can give you a sense of peace. Now, like you, I spend a lot of mental energy running scenarios of fear and of worry. For example, a couple of years ago, I was working in the office at Seabreeze on a Saturday, and I heard the sound of sirens, you know, fire trucks um, heading our way. And that's not unusual because we're pretty close to a fire station. It's on the same street. Um, but I noticed that they didn't go by. They didn't pass us by like they normally do. They stopped about the time they got to our property. Well, that made me curious. And so I stepped out of the office and I saw three fire trucks in our parking lot and guys pulling out hoses. And I'm thinking, what is burning? Well, it, it turns out that um, that Saturday, we, were, we have a basketball league that we run called Upward Basketball for, for youth for grade school. And we, on a given Saturday, when the league's running, we've got 350 kids and all their families all over that campus. And this was one of those days. And what had happened is the vendor that we were using for food on that day had accidentally started a fire in our outdoor kitchen. And as the fire grew, the propane tanks started hissing and, the, and sounded like they were about to blow. If you've ever heard a fire tank getting ready to launch, that is not a good sound. It's not a peace-producing sound. So thankfully, some really quick-thinking coaches and parents evacuated the kids and the families to the far parking lot, and the fire department extinguished it. Two of the workers of the vendor that was making food for us um, were injured. One was a minor injury. The second one was a pretty serious injury, life-threatening injury. So when the fire trucks left and the ambulances pulled out, I went back to the office and tried to go back to work. And I was having a hard time because all I could do is think of what's, what's going to happen next. I started creating scenarios. I started running scenarios. I, I started... 
I mean, some of my scenarios were death scenarios. What if this guy dies? And then that led to lawsuit scenarios. Oh no, are we gonna be sued? And then, then I thought about fire inspection scenarios. The fire department never comes and put out a fire without coming back and inspecting what's going on. I thought, oh no. That gonna lead to some big fine scenarios? And then I thought of angry parent scenarios. We're trying to reach out to our community and what's this gonna do? And then, it wasn't audible, but I heard the whistle of Christ blow. So, all right, you're out of bounds. You're not just out of bounds, you're, you're in another court. You're running so many fear and worry scenarios. Because my scenarios had not factored God into the equation. Now, for me, I'm too analytical, just the way I'm wired, to leave it at a simple, okay, Jesus is going to work it out. <sighs> I can go back to work. I had to do more work than just that. I needed replacement scenarios. And you may need to do this too. And these replacement scenarios don't come naturally. So here's the way the replacement scenarios work. Given what I know of what God has done in the past, what might he do in this situation? That's how you recreate scenarios of peace. I mean, you never know what God's going to do, but you know he intends good, so start imagining what that good might be. So I had to get really specific in creating scenarios on this. So here's some of what I came up with. Well, maybe God's wanting to do something good in the life of this vendor who was injured. I didn't really know him. Some of the people in the program did. But if his life is spared, maybe I just began to imagine, what if he starts coming to Seabreeze? What if he becomes a Christian? What if that's what this was all about? I don't know, but it sure was more peaceful thinking about that scenario than the ones I was thinking about. I mean, maybe God wants to improve the overall safety of our property so we're better prepared for even bigger challenges in the future. I don't know. But that's about as far as I got. But as I replaced my own oh, no scenarios with God scenarios, the peace of Christ began to replace the knot in my stomach and the worry in my heart. Now, honestly, it didn't go away completely, but it began to rule a little bit more. Now, a couple of years later, I can see some of what God was doing through that fire. The worker did recover, fully recovered. And for about two months, he was so grateful at all the outpouring of love from people in the church to him. He said, you know, I've never been to church. I, I, need, I need to start going to church. I'm going to come to church. He hasn't. But who knows what God will do with that in the future. And we ended up running a gas line to the outdoor kitchen, which is a lot safer than propane tanks. And some other good things have happened in our relationship with the city out of that. Now, if I could have just been transported a few months ahead, that would have calmed me down right away. But you can't do that. You just have to imagine the future. I would have seen the reason to be at peace. But we can't do that. We can only imagine. So Christians make a practice of doing their imagining by adding a heavy dose of what Christ might do in the future. And then now the last rule is the grace rule. In the New Testament, peace has a buddy. Peace always shows up with a buddy. 18 times at the beginning of a New Testament book, we read something like this. Titus 1, verse 4, the beginning of the book of Titus. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
The peace buddy is grace. Grace and peace, grace and peace. They hang out together. Now, most Christians will tell you that God's grace is his forgiveness for our sin, and that's, that's true. But it's much more than that. That's just a small part of what God's grace does. The words that are translated in the Bible, grace, point to something that's more dynamic than just the fact you're forgiven. The Hebrew word for grace means to, it's the image of God bending down to create beauty. The Greek word for grace means to cause joy. Now, forgiveness does both of those, but that, the image is much more than just forgiveness. I think what's most interesting about God's grace is the setting in which it bends down to, to create beauty, the context in which it brings joy. Grace occurs only in the context of a mess, of great difficulty, of huge challenge. That's why we describe the movements of an athlete or a dancer as being graceful. Why? It's because they're not doing the easy. By their great strength and skill, they're doing the seemingly impossible and they're making it look easy. That's what grace does. And this is what God does. You know, if you're just walking to lunch, Someone's not going to come along and say, wow, really graceful. <laughs> Walking's not hard. We do it all the time. Now, if you walk on your hands to lunch, all right, now we're talking grace. <laughs> that's graceful. That's, that's hard to pull off. So grace shows up to unravel messes, to make something beautiful out of something that's been destroyed to make something possible out of something that seems to be impossible. So here's my working definition for grace. Grace is the muscle and skill of God that does the seemingly impossible. And we all need that. He can turn the wrong that we do into a thing of beauty. Now, we don't do it just to see what he can do with this mess. No, that's mocking God. But we get a chance to, again and again, see God doing his best work. It occurs not in the beginning of creation. It occurs whenever God brings beauty out of ashes, the scripture says. Now, we, don't, we can't do that. We don't have that much skill and power. We lose peace whenever things break, whenever things fall apart. You know, when there's a relationship break, we think, oh, no, and we go into turmoil. Whenever there's a moral break, like, oh, man, again, there's no hope for me. Whenever our dreams break, we just go into chaos and turmoil. And that's why in a broken world, peace is very fragile. But what we've done in those moments, if something breaks, if something fails, if dreams fall apart, you have just entered into the territory in which grace can now be applied because you have a mess on your hands. If everything's fine, there's no need for grace. If you're doing great, there's no need for grace. Grace shows up when something impossible needs to happen. Now, that's hard to see, and that's hard to believe 
if your life is broken right now. This is why this is a piece, as it says in this passage, you have been called to in one body. You know, as you gather as a church, as we gather as a student ministry, all around this room, there are evidences of the stories that I've heard of as people already, even at this young age, repairing stuff that's already been broken. I mean, there are, there are people who are coming out of abusive situations that are beginning to see beauty come out of their lives because of God's grace. There are people who have been trapped in addictions that are beginning to get free of those things. That's the power of God's grace. And as you get to know each other, you get to build hope that, you know, God's arm of grace is strong. If that person can get help, well, maybe I can get help. Maybe there's a reason for me to be at peace in the middle of this. One of my favorite verses, and we don't, I don't think we have it on the screen, so I'll just say it to you, and you can look it up later. It's Hebrews 4.16, and the passage is talking about Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. He represents us to the Father. And he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not a high priest who's looking at us saying, what is wrong with you people? When are you ever going to get it together? He's not that kind of high priest. Whenever we stumble, whenever we're weak, he's like, oh, I sympathize with that. Why? Because he walked this earth in a body. Now, there is one big difference. He didn't give in to sin. We do. But he knows the pull of sin. He knows the struggles we face. Isn't that amazing? So it says this in verse 16. Because of that, let us then approach the throne of grace. It's not a throne of gold. It's not a throne of power. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of, okay, if you're broken, if you're struggling, if you're, that's what this throne does. It's a throne of grace with confidence. Now, if you're, in turmoil on the inside, confidence is the last thing you're experiencing. But because you have a high priest who can sympathize, and because the throne you're approaching is the throne of, of forgiveness and help, then let's just barge in the doors and walk straight up to the throne and ask for help with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It took me a while to, to really learn this part I used to think, okay, I'm going to have to do something to get mercy. No. You approach the throne of grace to receive mercy. It's there. Just accept it. That's all you got to do. Just accept it. It's already there. You don't have to do calisthenics. You don't have to promise. what. Just take it. It's sitting right there. It's right there at the footstool of the throne. Just receive the mercy. And then find grace. That was a statement that took me a lot of fear. Find grace. Again, the grace is there. The problem is we don't see it. So I, I've had to work and continue to work at learning to see God's grace in the middle of my life. To see evidence of God's grace in the middle of really challenging things. To see God's grace in someone else's life. 
It's not going to be apparent. It has to be looked for. What you're going to see is the mess in your life, the mess in someone else's life. But if you look a little further, you can see the muscle of God beginning to work. So I'll pray, God, I'll, I accept your mercy. Now what I, I really need is help. I need grace to help rebuild this, to know how to respond to this person, to know what to do about this. And then peace can come. So are you at peace? One of the challenges of life is life, and this is not going to be encouraging to you, but life just gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> there's a lot of it that is, there's some real sweet things. I'm not just saying it's all darkness and dreariness. But I, what I am saying is, as you move forward in the stages of life, you find more and more reasons to be in turmoil. I mean, you get married, there's some more things that you got to struggle with. You have kids, oh my goodness, you will worry about them till the day either you or they die. I mean, it's just part of it. They're, they're a blessing. But there's just turmoil that comes with that. So we need to, we need to learn the rules of peace and let the whistle of Christ blow so that we can grow. We can't grow if we're just in turmoil about this and that and what's happening here. So here's the question as we wrap up. Are you at peace? My guess would be it's a mixed bag. Sometimes yes, a lot of times maybe not so much. Let Christ blow the whistle. Let him tell you that you're out of bounds when you go it alone and forget that you're part of a team or when you run scenarios that factor out God's involvement, or when you see only the facts in front of you and none of the grace of God at work in the middle of it. So let's, um, let's read this together. In fact, why don't we go ahead and stand, because I think we're going to sing one song after this. So let's stand. We're going to read Colossians 3.15 together. Colossians 3.15. And then I'll pray, then we'll sing a song. So here it is, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that the peace you bring is so different than the peace of this world because we can't come up with all the conditions all the time to be at peace in the way this world dials that up. We thank you for your body that you use to call us to peace. And we confess to you that so much of the times we're, we're just allowing worry to rule our hearts. And we're factoring you out both what we've seen you do in the past and what we know that you will do in the future. So I pray that you would help us to, to learn how to be at peace so that we can continue to work on the implications of our commitment to follow you. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.